look at Acts chapter 21, verses 17 through 26. Acts 21, 17 through 26. Luke writes, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through His ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And he said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from that which has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, once again, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the instruction that you give us, even in passages that seem obscure and seem irrelevant to our culture. But I want to pray that you will help us to see how this passage is relevant for our church and our time. Father, speak to us this morning in very practical ways. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's been said that peace is that brief, glorious moment in history when everybody stands around reloading their guns. (laughs) Will and Ariel Durant in their book, The Lessons of History, say, war is one of the constants of history and has not diminished with civilization and democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. In other words, doing the math, we experience war 92.2% of the time. When it comes to peace, let's not be naive. Peace does not come easy. And I think we are naive sometimes. Um, I saw a bumper sticker the other day, and maybe you've seen bumper stickers like this. Give peace a chance. (laughs) Sometimes I just look at those bumper stickers and I... I hope the owner would walk out so I could ask, what what exactly do you mean by your bumper sticker? Give peace a chance. Or visualize world peace. (laughs) 
Maybe we should try that. Should we all just take a moment right here? No, no let's not waste our time. Visualize world peace. The cold, harsh reality is that sometimes you have to fight for peace. In 1 Peter 3, 10 and 11, Peter wrote, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. That's a good reminder. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Whether we're talking about peace between nations or peace between churches or peace between individuals, we must seek it. We must pursue it because it will not just happen because we're dreaming about it or hoping against all hope that somehow it's going to work itself out. No, we have to be aggressive if we're going to experience peace. If you've been with us in recent weeks, you know that we've been talking about Paul going up to Jerusalem and he's finally arrived in Jerusalem. And one of the reasons why he's going up to Jerusalem is he wants to show that there's solidarity between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. He wants to make it real clear that we love one another in the body of Christ. Now, for various reasons, Luke doesn't mention this until a little later in 2417, but Paul brought with him when he came to Jerusalem a financial gift from the Gentile brothers. It was a gift to help out with famine relief. And one of the reasons why Paul brought this gift is because he wanted to show that the Gentile Christians in other areas of the empire really do care about their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And he wanted to show when one part suffers, we all suffer because we're in this together. He wanted to make it real clear when the Jewish Christians over here are going through a difficult time, the Gentile Christians way over here care about their brothers and sisters in Christ. But that offering was not sufficient to bring both sides together. A little more work had to be done. And the question I want us to consider this morning is what does it take to have peace and unity in the body of Christ. What does it take to have peace and unity in the very diverse body of Christ? And many things could be said, but let me give you just three simple points this morning. It will be very simple, very practical, but a little more difficult to put into practice. Number one, it takes humility. It takes Humility. In verse 17, we're told that they finally came to Jerusalem and the brothers received them gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in to James. This is the half-brother of Jesus. He's the leader of the Jerusalem church. So he goes in, he meets with James and all the brothers who were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through His ministry. Back in Acts 15, Paul came to the Jerusalem church and he explained how God was working among the Gentiles. And at that council, they made it very clear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Some were saying back in Acts 15 
that unless the Gentiles are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, they can't be saved. So in other words, the question was raised, wait a second, these Gentiles can't just believe in Jesus. They also have to be circumcised and they also have to follow the Jewish customs. And the council met and the council said, no, because salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. They don't have to be circumcised and they don't have to follow Jewish customs in order to be saved. If they want to follow the customs, they can. But they don't have to. So that issue was settled at the Jerusalem Council. And that's very important. We'll come back to that a little later. But here, some years later, Paul is once again back in Jerusalem, meeting with James and the leaders of the church. And he's telling them once again about how God is working among the Gentiles. And here's the response in verse 20. And when they heard it, They glorified God. I love that. They glorified God. Here's two ministry leaders getting together and they're just praising God for the work that He is doing among them. God's working in Jerusalem. He says thousands have come to Christ. God's working among the Gentiles. This is wonderful. And the reason why I say that there's humility here is because there's no competitive There's no jealousy. There's no envy. There's just humble gratitude to God for all that He's doing. One one of the greatest killers in the church is pride. And I think C.S. Lewis does a great job of putting his finger on the very essence of pride. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote. Now, what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. That's very important. It is competitive by its very nature, while the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would not be nothing to be proud of. See what he's saying? Very important. Why, why are we proud? Because we think we have something a little more than the next person. Whether it's a little more money or another possession they don't have or a little more intelligence or better looking or better off dressed or whatever it is. That's pride. Feeling good about ourselves because we're we're a cut above the rest. He goes on and he says, it is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. So that's very important. And we would like to think that this pride doesn't enter into the religious realm, but it does. <laughs> it does. A little later he says, um, we have a test that we can uh, apply to ourselves to see if we're proud of our 
religious lives. He says, whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. I like that. When we're in the presence of God, we should just forget about ourselves and we should just glory in what God is doing. And, and few things will bring disruption to a church like pride. And it even happens among ministers. It's, there's a fascinating passage in Philippians. This is what Paul said in Philippians 1, beginning at verse 15. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. That's sad. Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. Then Paul says, but it doesn't matter to me. I rejoice that Christ is proclaimed. Who cares what their motive is? As long as Christ is proclaimed. And, and Paul could put aside the competition. He could put aside the fact that they were trying to inflict punishment on him. He said, I'm just glad that Christ is proclaimed. That's humility right there. You don't care what others are doing. You don't care how it affects you. You just care about what God is doing. Two antidotes to pride, very simply. One is recognize our own sinfulness. Recognize our own sinfulness. You know, it's fascinating if you follow Paul chronologically, and I'm not going to give you these verses, but Paul says at one point, he says, you know what? I'm the least of the apostles. So he says, here's the twelve apostles, I'm the least of the apostles. A little later, and you can follow this chronologically, he says, I am the least of God's people. And you can see how he's going down. I'm the least of the apostles who are way up here. And then a little later, he says, you know what? I'm, I'm the least of God's people. I don't even deserve to be called a Christian. And then a little later, he says, not only am I the least of the apostles, not only am I the least of God's people, I am the chief of sinners. Because I persecuted the church and was a blasphemer. Paul realized that he was a wretched sinner. And when you realize who you are, there's no room for pride. There's no room for pride. And it really is healthy, believe it or not. I know it's paradoxical, but it really is healthy to consider our sinful condition but not remain there so we can wallow in the muck and mire, but to realize our sinful condition and to realize the grace that God has bestowed upon us. Then we can be humble and we can be grateful at the same time. But not only should we recognize our own sinfulness, we need to recognize the sovereign greatness of God. The sovereign greatness 
of God. And you know, we sang a little earlier, He sought us, He bought us, He purchased our salvation. That's why we're Christians. It's not because of anything that we have done. Because of what He has done. And I, and I got a little nervous, if I can be honest with you, when we were singing that song. It said, I repented and won the victory. And I was like, boy, I want to be real careful here. <laughs> yes, we repented, but we didn't win the victory. We entered into the victory that Christ won for us. And I just wanted to make it real clear as to why we are victorious. It's not because of anything that we have done. It's because of what God has done. And even in this passage, I think it's worded very clear, carefully. In verse 19, it says, After greeting them, he, talking about Paul, related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles. And when they had heard it, they glorified God. So I think that's very important. Paul is saying, this is what God has done Therefore, God is to be glorified. And that's why it's so important to clarify God has done all the work because then He gets all the glory and all the credit. And there's no room for pride in the midst of that. So, God did all the work. So, it's great that we see humility among James and Paul and the believers. They're just praising God. Um, that He would use them to advance His kingdom and His glory. Now, what else will it take for there to be peace and unity in the body of Christ? There is a need for wisdom. Wisdom. And this is a theme I come back to again and again. Now, unfortunately, this excitement over God working among the Gentiles is short-lived because James goes on to tell Paul, um, I hate to break it to you, but there has been a false rumor being spread among the Jews about your teaching. And this is what we read beginning in the middle of verse 20. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law and they have been told about you falsely that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Isn't that a great question? What is to be done? This is what Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 says. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him. Next verse says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So which is it? Don't answer the fool. Answer the fool. Respond to the rumor. Don't respond to the rumor. Which is it? Well, it takes wisdom. It takes discernment to know the difference. How do you respond to rumors? Charles Spurgeon wrote a great, great book called uh, Lectures to My Students. And uh, he's, writing, he's writing to pastors, but what he says to pastors is really equally relevant to all Christians. And he says, if you're going to be effective in the ministry, he says, as pastors, you have to have a blind eye and a deaf ear. 
And he has a whole chapter in here called The Blind Eye and the Deaf Ear. And what Spurgeon basically says is, when you ever hear people in the church talking about you and your, your, your ministry, this is what you need to do. You need to turn to that rumor, the blind eye and the deaf ear. You, you need to just act and minister as though you didn't even hear what they said. You need to just go on with your ministry. So every time it comes up, well, pastor did this, blind eye, the deaf ear. Just, just put it aside. And he gets that in part from Ecclesiastes 7.21, which says, Also take no heed to all those words that are spoken, lest you hear your servant curse you. Don't take thought to the words you hear. Don't pay attention to your servant who curses you. And then a little later, um, the very next verse actually says, You know that in your heart you too have cursed others. So when you hear others talking about you, realize, you know what, you've done the same thing as well. Let it go. The blind eye and the deaf ear. Thank you. <laughs> it, it really is important. You don't want to be a rumor tracker. You don't want to be a rumor tracker. Facebook has many benefits. It has many downfalls. And one of the downfalls is, is rumors. Be so careful with gossip. You've you got to just let it go. But here's the question, though. It's not always the same. Do I respond or don't I respond? And as I said, sometimes you gotta, you got to just let it go. The blind eye and the deaf ear. But sometimes you do have to turn the seeing eye and the hearing ear. What, what's the difference? When it, when it relates to you personally and what people think about you, who, who cares? Who cares? You stand or fall before God. You have to have a little bit of thick skin. But if it concerns the ministry, God's reputation, the kingdom, or the church, then you have to respond. Not because you're worried about your reputation, but because you're worried about God's reputation. Or you're worried about there being harmony and peace in the church. So in this situation, in Acts, do they respond to these rumors or don't they? Well, first of all, let's be real clear about what's taking place here. Um, the rumors here do not relate to salvation. That issue was settled at the Jerusalem Council. They're not saying that Paul is teaching you know, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone for the Gentiles, but the Jews, they have to obey the law in order to be saved. No, it's not about that. The issue is about discipleship. Um, it's not even about what Paul taught the Gentiles. Specifically, it's about what he taught the Jews. 21. They have been told about what you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles. So specifically, it's about his teaching among the Jews. And it doesn't relate to salvation. It doesn't relate to morality even. It relates to customs. They've been told that he teaches the Jews to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. So this is about Paul's teaching of the Jews about observing Jewish customs. Now, it's very important 
if you're going to address a rumor, make sure you understand very clearly what the issue is. Otherwise, you're just going to be talking past one another. Make sure you understand very clearly what the issue is. So the issue here doesn't relate to the gospel. It doesn't even relate to morality. It deals with different customs that people have. And in order to bring harmony in the body of Christ, Paul is willing to, and this brings us to our third point, sacrifice. He is willing to sacrifice his liberty so that there can be peace among the Jews and the Gentiles. This is what James comes up with. He says, Do therefore what we tell you. Have four men who are under a vow. And this is a Nazarite vow. We've talked about this before. This is an Old Testament vow. And Jews could take this vow as a sign of their devotion to God. Was it mandatory? Was it required? This was, this was a Jewish custom that you could participate in or not participate in. You could go one way or another. And James is suggesting to Paul that he partake voluntarily of this Jewish custom. He says, take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance with the law. So James is saying, here's how we can respond. We don't have to say anything. Your behavior will speak for itself. Voluntarily take this vow. Pay the expenses of this other men. And many of the commentators said it was probably quite expensive. But that also would demonstrate that he's not against Jewish customs. And all people would have to do is respond and say, well, Paul isn't against Jewish customs. Look, he took a Nazarite vow and he paid for these men to undergo a Nazarite vow. He has no problem with Jewish customs. And then the rumor could be squelched without Paul saying a single word. And there could be harmony in the body of Christ. The Jews and the Gentiles could get along. And Paul is more than happy to do this because he wants there to be peace in the body of Christ. In verse 26, says that he took the men and the next day, he didn't waste any time, he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice that when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So right away he says, I'm more than happy to do this so that there can be peace in the body of Christ. Now, here's what we have to do. Um, we have to realize, as Christians, uh, Christianity is going to look different in different places. Uh, Christianity among the Gentiles looked very different than Christianity among the Jews. Uh, the Gentiles were not observing Jewish customs. Uh, Paul did tell the Gentiles, you don't need to be circumcised. You don't have to follow the Jewish customs. All you have to do, and here's what they were told to do in a letter, and we see this in verse 25. He says, just abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. So people won't think you're involved in idol worship. Uh, stay away from blood because that's repulsive to Jews. And from what has been strangled, talking about meat that was strangled, and from sexual immorality. So stay away from those things. 
and otherwise just live as God's calling you to live. But then you have Jews who have come to Christ, but you know what? Christianity among Jews still look very Jewish. Jewish in their dress, Jewish in their diet, Jewish in their customs. They're still observing all the feasts. They're still circumcising their children. looks very different. Christianity in America is going to look very different than Christianity in other parts of the world. Here's what Anthony Hokema wrote in his book, Created in God's Image. He said, In the United States, many evangelical churches, particularly those of the fundamentalist type, have rules against smoking, drinking, movies, dancing, and card playing. Many churches in Europe, however, whose members readily drink and smoke, recoil in horror at the idea of Christians wearing blue jeans and chewing gum. Now, I don't know if that still holds today. This was written a while back. But it illustrates that Christianity in this nation looks very different than Christianity among these people over here. And these people have different scruples than the people over here. He goes on and he gives a great illustration. He says, Some years ago, my wife and I heard a sermon of the parable of the Good Samaritan in a Protestant church in Switzerland. After describing how the Good Samaritan bandaged the injured man, put him on his donkey, and brought him to the inn, the pastor went on to say, He, the Good Samaritan, gave him a cigarette and a beer and had a little talk with him. He says, We were greatly amused and wondered how American fundamentalists might have reacted to this application of present-day Swiss hospitality by the man in the parable. (laughs) We we have to realize there's absolute standards in which you have chapter and verse. You know, thus saith the Lord, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery. But then there are places where we live according to the principles of of God's Word. Maybe what kind of music to listen to. Uh, One person might say, I don't think that's particularly edifying. And another person might say, I think it's okay. Um, you You have to apply principles related to music. And then you have other areas where it's just a matter of preference. And I think if there's going to be harmony in the body of Christ, you need to realize that Christianity is going to look different in different places. For example, Christianity in your home will look different than Christianity in my home. And and we could just have every family here because you're going to have different household rules. You're going to apply biblical principles in different ways. And if we're not violating absolutes, there needs to be flexibility. Um, And if there's principles that are in place, there needs to be civility. We need to talk to one another calmly. Um, But we have to work through these issues. Or, excuse me, work through these issues. And we should all be willing, if necessary, to give up our rights. Paul was at liberty to say, you know what, I don't want to take a Nazarite vow. I don't have to subject myself to that. But he did. Because the one thing that trumps all other things in the body of Christ is love. And you can say, yes, I'm at liberty to to drink that, to go there, to participate in that, but if it's going to be offensive, love is more important. Peace in the body of Christ is more important. I need to think about how this will impact 
my brothers and sisters. Because somehow we have to get along. You know, interesting, this, this last week, uh, a salesman came into our church and uh, he was trying to sell some things. And um, I asked a question that I, that I love to ask. Uh, where do you go to church? <laughs> and that's how I ask the question. I don't ask, ask people if they go to church. I ask people where they go to church. It always gets a good, a good response. Um, but I asked where he went to church. And he said, well, years ago I was part of a certain church in Ohio. And now he said that he was, he was attending a couple of Bible studies. I said, but you're not a part of a church. He said, well, I meet together with other, with other Christians for Bible studies. I said, yes, but you're, you're, you're not part of a church. And he said, well, the church in, in the book of Acts, they, they didn't have church buildings. They, they met in homes. And I said, yeah, that's, that's right. They're, they're house churches. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. Churches can meet in all different places. They've met in caves. They've met in all different places. But if you're just part of a Bible study, that's, that's not a church. And, and he was talking about how Christian people are so difficult. So judgmental. And, and when he left, I thought, basically what he's saying is, he, he loves God the Father, but can't stand his brothers and sisters in Christ. So I love God, but boy, his children are a mess and I can't, I can't get along with them. So what he's done is he's really opted out of the church. And he, he, he gave me a lame excuse for that. I'm not part of a church. I'm part of a Bible study. That, that's sufficient. And I was saying it's, it's not sufficient. Because he was talking about how the early church was committed to Bible study. I said, yes, they were committed to Bible study, but they were committed to more than that. They were committed to praying for one another, using their spiritual gifts, giving of their tithes and their, and their offerings, submitting themselves to the leadership of the church. Um, they were doing more than just studying the Bible all by themselves and then living however they wanted. But, but that mentality is pervasive. And, and I think it's pervasive because we just don't work through issues. And it's easier just to be all by ourselves. And he basically said, I, I can study the Bible and I can just live however I want. You can't do that. Being a part of a church is important and, and working through issues is very important. Jesus made it very clear in the in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what he said in Matthew 5, uh, verse 23. He said, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. You know what Jesus is saying? Before you go to church to worship, if there's conflict with your, your brothers and sisters, work that out, then come, and then worship. But you, you just can't come by yourself. You can't come by yourself. You have to work through issues. And then you can come. So, God's very serious about His brothers and sisters getting along and and working through difficulties. 
But you know why we don't? And it probably comes right back to pride. <laughs> our, our first point, it's, it's because we're, we're difficult and it's hard to get along with those people because um, we're judging them and they're judging me and it's, it's terrible. You know, that, that gentleman walked out that day. I, I, I was so sad. I was like, that, that's not honoring to God. It, it's, it's not good for him. It's not what the church is to be about. And, and sadly, that's, that's happening more and more. And in some ways, I, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir because you're all part of the church, but you need, you need to know that the movement is toward a churchless Christianity. And it's very common for people to think they can be a Christian but not a part of the church. And I think they're willing to accept that because it's a lot easier to do. But challenge people who aren't a part of the church and say, no, that's, that's not... God's intention. God established the church. The church is His idea and we need one another. And let people know they need the church. The church needs them. And let's, let's do whatever we can uh, to bring together the, the body of Christ. Let's, let's be humble. Let's appreciate how God is working in the lives of other people. Let's exercise great wisdom to know when to respond, know when not to respond. I think probably 90% of the time we just we don't respond. I, I really think that. I, I think the verse we should apply more than any other is bear, bear with one another. <laughs> just put up with one another. Just turn the blind eye and the deaf ear 90% of the time. When you do have to respond, exercise wisdom, gentleness, kindness, And be willing to sacrifice so that the body of Christ can come together. Why is there a body of Christ? Why is there a church? Because God loved the world so much that He sacrificed His one and only Son. And Jesus sacrificed His life on the cross so that we could be reconciled to the Father and to one another. So apart from the sacrifice of God, there wouldn't even be a church. And that's why there is a church. Because of the sacrifice of Christ. And we need to follow in His footsteps and humble ourselves. If Jesus could leave heaven and humble Himself and become obedient unto death, we can humble ourselves. And if Jesus can sacrifice Himself for us, we can sacrifice in smaller ways to maintain peace and unity in the body of Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Thank You for His atonement for our sins. We also thank You for the example that He gave us to follow and help us to follow in His footsteps. Father, I thank You for the unity that we enjoy in this church. Father, I don't take it for granted. Satan's desire is always to divide and conquer. I want to pray that as individuals, we will seek peace and pursue it. And again, we ask You to watch over us and protect us and build up this body. In Christ's name, Amen.